Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I am joined by the one and only Jeremy Whitlock. I think your most uh, important accomplishment, Jeremy, is that you've appeared on the Decouple podcast before. I mean, I'm a little biased, but uh, you, you also have an incredible resume. People should check out your former episode. Um, it's all about CanDo, and CanDo is in the news. If you haven't noticed, um, Reuters exclusive on the case for CanDo report today. Um, a lot of hum in Ontario uh, about this new Canadians for Nuclear Energy report. There'll be a link in the show notes, but enough of my self-promotion. Um, in addition to being a former decouple guest, uh, Jeremy works at the IAEA and I'm going to let you finish off this, uh, this introduction I've started, um, try and, try and keep it to, uh, like a five floor elevator ride. Go ahead. Thanks, Chris. I'm, I'm very happy to make this return engagement on, on decouple. Um, and actually just as an aside, I was talking to someone this morning having coffee and out of the blue, they mentioned that they were a big fan of, of decouple and, (laughs) And yourself and they follow every episode but they didn't mention that they had seen me so i guess they missed that one but i said you know funnily enough uh this afternoon i'll be doing another one anyway yeah so um so i am uh a um senior technical advisor as they call me at the international atomic energy agency the area of specialty here is is safeguards so i work with a team of people that help make the world safe from pr- potential proliferators who want to misuse uh, nuclear technology. And this goes back to my, my career at Chalk River Labs in Canada. I, I did 22 years uh, at Chalk River, which is about two hours west of Ottawa. Um, I also grew up in the area, so I'm a, I'm a second-generation nuclear person because my dad worked there as well. Um, and I've been here since 2017, again, again working in, in safeguards. So... Um, Safeguards essentially is it's the what what happens when you sign the non-proliferation treaty, which is most countries. Um, if you are a country that doesn't have nuclear weapons, according you know legally according to the, the non-proliferation treaty, which are the P5 nations. If you're the other nations, you mean that means you accept full scope, uh, comprehensive nuclear safeguards uh, on your entire state, your entire country, and that means that all nuclear material is under uh, under uh, verification requirements you know this this episode came about um you know because you know and you came back into my life jeremy it was wonderful um because i uh, spent i probably spent too much time uh but at least a couple weeks preparing for my debate with uh dr gordon edwards in ottawa that's about three shows back um in the archives the great canadian nuclear debate um and you know you have a um you know in addition to the iea and chalk river you also have an incredible website. Um, I think it's called Canadian Nuclear FAQ. Um, we'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, but you have a long history um, of interacting with the Canadian anti-nuclear movement and some of its uh, key members or ideologues or whatever we're going to call them. Um, and so you were you were incredibly useful for prepping for that debate. Um, so two things I wanted to cover in today's episode. Um you know, it almost starting to feel a bit irrelevant um, as the anti-nuclear movement is starting to feel, um, you know, to explore um, the anti-nuclear mind or mindset. Um, so I don't know how much time we'll spend on that, but I, I did want to fact check some of the things Gordon Edwards said. 
And, you know, in, in our preparation for the debate, the issue that I found the hardest to, to get my head around and deal with was that of proliferation. Um, and so I thought, who better to deep dive this further with um, then my good friend, uh, who I've never met before, uh, Jeremy Whitlock. <laughs> it's, it's funny how these friendships grow, uh, you know, from doing these hour long podcasts, but it's actually like, I think it's very rare to sit down and have a one-on-one with someone for an hour, like outside of, you know, work meeting or something like that. So anyway, it's something I've really valued, uh, from this, this whole podcast experience. And, you know, <clears throat> Another great thing about the podcast experience is I think I'm over 200 episodes in and I've spoken with some really interesting people. Again, we haven't really covered the bomb, which we really need to, um, or proliferation, but I have spoken with a proliferator <laughs> and that was uh, Dr. Anil Kakodkar, um, who run the, ran the BARC, the Bubba Atomic, I'm going to get that wrong, Atomic Research Center, um, and was involved in, uh, he was the mechanical engineer behind the, was it the Smiling Buddha explosion the peaceful okay, nuclear yeah, explosions yeah, yeah. um that india set off i think in 74 and then the the three explosions in the 90s so like touching history like that um has been an incredible part of the podcast but it was interesting talking to a guy who's been you know involved in proliferation and the whole politics of it you know that the the already nuclear nations the early comers are like whatever um so maybe we'll get into that as well but this is too long of a, of a, of a little diatribe. Maybe we can start off, um, with the light and fluffy and, uh, and talk a little bit about your, um, impressions and reactions to the Gordon Edwards, uh, debate and explore a little bit the, the anti-nuclear mind, because I think there's still a lot of communication work that needs to be done by advocates. And it's, it's really important to understand, um, where, um, those who disagree with us are coming from. And I think an empathetic approach is how you win arguments. You need to understand where people are coming from. So without further ado, Jeremy, what were your thoughts about the debate? Well, yeah, and, and I'm empathetic to people who are scared of nuclear power because, because who wouldn't be if you didn't know anything about it? Um, I'm less empathetic to people who, who I, I know for a fact understand the science very well and, and yet insist on trying to scare people about it. And so that brings us to the anti-nuclear people. Now, I've been around long enough in this field talking to anti-nuclear folks, mainly in, uh, in, in Canada, to have, I don't want to say outlived, but I, 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 am, I am active longer than all of them. And I think, I think that Gordon Edwards is the only one. I, I could be a mistake, but of all the people, there was Norm Rubin of Energy Probe, um, uh, several others, and, and there was Gordon Edwards. And, and he's the only one, I think, that's still around of that, of that generation. So I've been and, and to give to give to give the listeners a sense of this guy's longevity, um, you know, it came to my attention that Dr. Gordon Edwards debated Dr. Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, in Toronto, moderated by Canadian cultural legend Pierre Burton. I mean, it was 49 years ago, essentially, almost to the day that I debated him after. But you know, like my hats really goes off to Gordon Edwards for his stamina. Um, I, th- I think I've I've got some solid critiques, but anyway, I wanted to carry on. I just wanted to give people a sense of that, you know, grand sweep of history. It's like what one human lifetime um, can experience. But anyway, sorry, carry on. And you were generous to point that out in the debate at, right at the outset too, um, acknowledging the man's stamina. Um, yeah, so he's definitely been around well longer than I've been involved, and he started off an anti bomb, and and uh, as many of of the anti bomb people. Um, evolved, he did too, to anti-nuclear power. And he sees the whole thing as one big thing to be against. He's, he doesn't like nuclear technology. Um, d- despite what he says, he might say things 
to fuzzify that, but, but the essential truth about him is he doesn't like nuclear technology. And so he'll tolerate it a, a little bit if, if we have to put up with it, but really he would like, if he had a choice, it, it would go out the door. Oh, sorry. And so everything that he says and does is, is, is motivated by that. Just regardless of the agenda of the meeting that he's attending or the topic of the talk, it's all about this thing has to go. And he's, and he's been telling that same story for, for, for decades. Um, various anti-nuclear uh, spokesmen have, have different motivations and, and, and agendas. Uh, some are more sincere than others. Um, and, and, and some are kind of like, they, they allow themselves to walk that hairy edge of, of, of truth. And, and uh, I'm afraid to say that Gordon Edwards is, is one of these people. He's, he's a very smart individual. He's intelligent. He's, he's read all the material um, that, that's out there in, in the public domain, and he's able to regurgitate it at, at will. Um, so he knows what's true. He knows where, where that boundary is, and he knows how far he can go beyond the boundary to just enough to put the, the fear of the atom in, in people, but not to give them that extra little bit that they need to, to address the fear. So, so he'll say that, that, that radiation is like little mini explosions going on, and the radiation in your body is, is are little mini explosions, and he'll use the word explosions. And when, when challenged on that, you know, why do you, would you have to say explosions? Because you know and I know that you are invoking the, the, uh, the, the bomb in that imagery. And you'll say, well, they are explosions. You know, it's energy being released. And it's like, so that's, that's an example where he, he, he knows that he's, he's not lying, but he's just choosing to use very, very particular rhetoric to, to get a point across. And he does this with every one of the topics. So it, it, his, his three favorite topics then are, are, are radiation and and all of its associated um, uh, fear factors, so that includes accidents, and then waste. Uh, basically, there's, there's no solution for, for, for spent fuel, and he'll push this over and over again, um, which is not true. And, and then his main topic is, is, is proliferation. And it, it really comes around, which is his original entry into the, <laughs> into the field, where he's just, he is sincerely afraid that the world will come to a cataclysmic end because of, because of nuclear technology. So I could be generous and ascribe that to that, that sincere feeling of his too. And I mean, that's especially for his generation, that is not uh, an irrational fear. I mean, even let's be quite honest for our generation, it's not a totally irrational fear. Uh, it always amazes me. Um, I mean, I guess there have been some close calls, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think there was a, uh, a, a submariner, um, a, a captain in a nuclear submarine who, you know, maybe could have, should have had the order to push the button during the uh, blockade of Cuba and, and did not. Uh, there was some close calls from what I understand. And once you start slinging nuclear weapons, uh, from what I understand, the game theory basically plays out to you You don't end up with a little tactical exchange. You end up with the whole whole bit, um, which is which is terrifying. And it, and it still should be, you know, something that's that's terrifying to us or, or you know, enough to, I don't like terror or like, you know, the Greta Thunberg thing of, you know, panicking, but like, sober sober um thought and consideration and i guess that's you know part of why you work at the institution you work at um <clears throat> like what struck me with gordon you know in terms of trying to really again empathize and understand his psychology is that the root of it is in the bomb um that's rational particularly for his generation but the thesis he has is essentially um we can get rid of the bomb and pretend it never existed or or just you know hit you know control alt delete or whatever it is on your keyboard if we can just get rid of every bit of nuclear technology and 
you know, that's why I talked a fair amount about uh, isotopes. I mean, isotopes are made in power reactors, but I mean, he's even against isotopes being made in, in medical research reactors. Um, and, you know, you were part of the team that helped coach me and get my knowledge base up on on uh, medical isotopes. But that's what I think really struck me is is that that's the fundamental thing in the flawed thinking. And, and I think you were also very helpful in terms of, you know, you have to acknowledge um, that every reactor, yes, it does make plutonium. Is that weapons-grade plutonium or sufficient isotopic purity? No. Or, you know, uh, could a research reactor also potentially be used in a diversion program? Yes. Like, there's always a risk. But that was the framing I used of, you know, the medical framing of let's discuss this diagnostic uh, approach or treatment decision, risks, benefits, and alternatives. Um, and, you know, just understanding that that this profoundly human desire to stuff a genie back in the bottle of something you think is an apocalyptic threat. Um, it makes sense, but it's, it's not a sound argument and the harms are, are very real, you know, be it air pollution in Germany now, or, you know, failure on climate goals, or, you know, again, I think more immediate, just all of the medical benefits of sterilization and, and, uh, cancer treatments, et cetera. So that, that was kind of my takeaway. And I, I really have to credit you for helping me, I think, develop that. So thank you. <laughs> you're, you're, you're very welcome. And you did a very good job of representing that, that view uh, in the time you had, too. Um, yeah, so he, he, he does have this advantage that uh, so if, if you assume that you don't need nuclear reactors, then you can say, let's just get, like, the safest world is the one without any kind of nuclear technology. And this really resonates with his audiences. And he, and he mostly speaks in echo chambers, which is another thing about, about him, and, and most anti-nuclear spokesman as well. He's, so he's invited to a lot of echo chambers, by which I mean he's saying a view that he knows 90% of the audience is going gonna, is gonna to echo back to him. And so he feels that resonance. And, and he really starts to, he, he doesn't do so well in a non-echo chamber environment. So he rightly, I guess, sticks to the echo chambers. But he can say things like, we don't need nuclear power. Look at Germany, they're not using nuclear power because there's this, there's this belief that they, they got rid of it and they're doing just fine. And, and visually, you see wind turbines and you think, well, they're, they're what's powering Germany now, which is not true. Um, but, but he knows he can say that and nobody's, gonna, like, nobody's likely to challenge him. So, so he doesn't have so the disadvantage that, that people like I have in, in, in going into that discussion is, is that I know that nuclear power is necessary or something very much like it. If not nuclear power, then some other large, reliable, abundant nuclear or clean energy source. It's not the things that are, that are being offered by, by, by his crowd. And so if you assume that you do need to have nuclear power, then you've got to do something about this yin and yang of, of it makes you could make plutonium for for weapons, and so you need to deal with that, um, and that's very very complicated. And it's why you have this institution here with thousands of people, uh, been around since 1957 and implementing the nonproliferation treaty since the early 70s, and uh, going to 183 countries on the planet doing inspections daily, even during um, a global pandemic when nobody was flying anywhere. Uh, there was one organization that did not stop going to every country on the planet, even if they had to drive across borders and do three weeks of, of, uh, of um, quarantine and to do three days of inspection. Um, so, so we have to think about that. And, and yes, we are a pro-nuclear organization. The, the International Atomic Energy Agency grew out of the Adams for Peace movement that, uh, you know, the, the U.S. proposal that, that, this is, is too beneficial to mankind to just keep within the countries where it was invented. We, we need to be able to irradiate crops to, to, to kill, get rid of pestilence, to extend the, the, the shelf life of food, to fight cancer, 
to provide um, abundant electricity, so, so the other uh, two-thirds of the population of the planet that doesn't have access to reliable electricity can, can maybe have a light turned on in the evening and maybe read a book and, and maybe learn something about the rest of the world, and it's not just subsistence living. And all of this was being imagined in the 50s, and so it was, it was utopian, but it, but it wasn't wrong. It was, they had to do something about the way... It, it couldn't continue the way the world was looking at, at that time. Um, and so the IAEA is the institution that came into into effect in the late 1950s to kind of t- to help spread the the value of nuclear technology. And then when the Non-Proliferation Treaty came along at the end of the of the 60s, it was the logical organization to house the Department of Safeguards, which is along with all of that ying, you have the yang of of the, of the weapons, and you want to not have the two the, the two connected. And it was the five weapon states. The, the, the P5, so um, U.S., France, uh, U.K., China, and, and Russia, um, as defined by that treaty, the countries that had exploded to that point in time nu- nuclear weapons uh, in the late 1960s. Um, so if, if that dotted line was, was the mid-1970s, you'd have, you'd have India, for example, in, in there. And India wouldn't be a country that exploded a, wep- a device out, outside of, of, um, of a common global support, it would be, oh yes, it's, there are six, there's now a P6 sort of thing. But, uh, so there's a dotted line at the beginning of the 1970s. Um, and so the and IAEA... There's no, there's, no, there's no coincidence that the members of the Security Council, the permanent members, are all the nuclear weapon states, right? Yes, yeah, it's no coincidence what, whatsoever. Um, and, and part of the NPT, the, the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, by the way, is an it, which is also signed by the weapon states is an agreement by the, by them to work towards disarmament. It's just it's, it's they haven't progressed very far on that, on that part of the NPT. <laughs> Not working but, that hard. But basically, it's it's an agreement that if nuclear technology is to be shared globally, it has to be done uh, securely uh, uh, as well. And so you are agreeing to have, as I mentioned before, safeguards on all of your nuclear activities. And if you're not one of these five countries. Um, so a country like Canada, for instance, um, has inspectors coming on a, on a daily, weekly basis to the nuclear facilities, uh, not just the reactors, but the process, the, the fuel fabrication facilities, the fuel storage facilities, the, the nuclear laboratories, uh, McMaster University with its reactor. They all get visited, um, even small amounts of nuclear technology, even the hospitals that have uh, uh, cobalt-60 or they have depleted uranium shielding in, 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 um, in cancer therapy machines. Um, so it, it all gets visited, and it's it's just to keep tabs on on who's who has nuclear material and, and what are they doing with it. And it's interesting because this this secure framework is is actually enabled by civilian nuclear technology. So because you have, and this speaks to Gordon Edwards' um, thesis that you can just get rid of nuclear technology, you can make everything illegal: nuclear weapons and nuclear technology. Just doing something with uranium. <laughs> that splits it is illegal and having plutonium is is illegal and i have pointed out to him in the past that um well, first of all making something illegal of course doesn't make it go away so let's assume that prohibition let's just, was pretty successful let's recognize <laughs> yes the prohibition of nuclear weapons it will be around it's just now it's underground and um and so then he you know they would he would propose well then you, you of course need a iaea like organization that is is checking into this. Well, I say, well, guess what? We, we have the IAEA, and because we have a civilian nuclear uh, industry globally, that, is, that puts the boots on the ground. That is, 
uh, and uniquely. It's, we are uniquely able to go into these countries legally and, and with, with very little notice and, and knock on the front door and like show me to your uranium and it better be there. And not just that, but we can go to other places in, in many countries that where well, maybe we, we, we suspect there's something going on and we can take a sample. We can take a sample of the dust on a, on a, on a, on a desk uh, of, a, of a professor's office where there should not be plutonium <laughs> isotopes, you know, but maybe we have a reason to think that there's some, there's some R&D going on there in, in plutonium separation or something. Um, and he sent the samples back to, to, uh, to Austria. I was, was going to say Vienna, but it's actually about half an hour south of Vienna where there's an IAEA laboratory, and they test it, and they look for plutonium. And, and this happens all the time, daily, all, 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 all year round. So, I mean, it, it kind of sounds like a, almost like a spy agency in some ways, um, but that's, that's wild. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's all kinds of stories and, and, uh, you know, I'm curious about, uh, you know, the relevance to the Iraq war and, and, you know, I think Saddam was refusing IEA inspections. Like it's, it's not all, uh, roses. Uh, this is, this probably yeah, has there's... some challenges, an agency that's supposed to be able to just walk in and you know, be kind of invasive and there's some easier you know. places on the world in the world to verify. Right. And there's some, so tell me, I guess, tell me, places. tell me about a place that's, that's been challenging or, I mean, obviously there's been States that have uh, gotten around this. Uh, I think about North Korea. Um, I'm sure there's a few other examples, yeah, but yeah. you know, nothing, nothing is perfect. And I'm sure Gordon Edwards, IEA police would be, you know, it's kind of like a global super cop or something <laughs> that, you know, imagines it, it would be perfect, but, um, you know, and that was, again, I think one of the key pieces of advice for me, because, you know, you can go into a debate like this, ultra partisan, and, you know, you're in such a defensive mindset that you don't want to concede anything. And I think the wisdom that you really imparted on me is like, you have to concede it. Yes, every nuclear reactor in the world makes plutonium. Yes, if we go the reprocessing route um, to reuse nuclear waste, that, you know, is a step towards making proliferation easier. We have to up the safeguards to match that. You know, and, and for me, again, it was very useful framing because I could say, well, you know, again, this is risk, you know, this is a medical conversation, essentially risks, benefits and alternatives, and then informed consent as a society. Do we decide that we want to do, you know, pyro reprocessing um, to, to use that spent nuclear fuel or to develop, you know, fast reactor technology? And right now, maybe there's not a, you know, uranium's cheap. Maybe we don't need to do that. Um, maybe the urgency will be there later. Who knows? I don't have a strong opinion on it, um, but I think it was just very useful. It really made me more relaxed in the debate to just be like, yeah, acknowledge that. But then again, have have a rational response to. to yeah. Well, I think what it comes down to is critical analysis. It's it's critical analysis. He, there, there's pros and cons. There's advantages and disadvantages, and we do it all the time. Um, you know, like so we have streets and we have cars going down those streets, and it's very close to the sidewalk, and we don't have big concrete walls between the sidewalk and and, and the street. So there's a certain risk that you're right. going to wander out in, into the street, and it does happen. Um, and everybody knows that if you walk out in the street. And a truck hits you, you you will die. You, you it's it's instant, and and it's a it's a risk that we we take, and we judge that against the. What if we didn't have the cars coming through the city? Well, we don't want that, and so I think we we know enough to keep ourselves on the sidewalk, and that's a risk that that we can deal with. And if there is an issue in a certain situation, a certain location, well, we do put little barriers up, and we have lights and and so on, so we we address it. And so we're we're everybody is very. Well aware of how we deal, how we make, we do critic, we critically analyze the risks uh, around us. Um, but for some reason, nuclear doesn't fall into that. People do not give that flexibility to to, to nuclear. It's what just one of those things where you say nuclear, you say the word nuclear, and people uh, Im- 
most people, I have this theory that there is no neutral feeling, n- neutral opinion on, on nuclear technology. People might say they don't care about it, apathetic, I haven't thought about it much, not too worried about it. Um, but then as soon as a tidal wave washes over a reactor in East Japan, and there's, and there's an issue and it's on CNN, um, and they're showing oil refineries burning and the ticker on the bottom says it's a <laughs> reactor on fire, people go, yes, I knew that. I knew that was a problem with that tech. I always suspected that, you know. And, and, they're, and they're fed this all the time through, through a various means uh, all the time from, from like the Simpsons and, and, and jokes on the side. And, and, you know, when I say I work at Chalk River Laboratories, oh, have you, have you, have you blown anything up lately? It was always the, the next thing I heard. Or do you glow in the dark? And, and ha, ha, ha. But so it didn't worry me too much. People were saying that, but it just shows that the, the immediate reaction n- never was, oh, so you're helping to, to provide 80% of the world's medical isotopes. Because, of course, they had no idea. <laughs> this goes to another issue, with our, which is our poor um, his, history of, of, of communications. Um, but so nuclear does, does, isn't accorded that, that flexibility, and, and people like Gordon Edwards know this. They, they, they know that they can just throw out, let's get rid of nuclear power, and you'd have 90% of the room just nodding, saying, yeah, I, I didn't think it did anything for us. I mean, there's, there's windmills. Why do, we need, why do we need that? They're not going to say, wait a minute, Let's see what nuclear does for us and put it in this column and let's see what its, what its challenges are and what we do about it. Um, so we, we never talk about safeguards in, in those kind of in, in environments. So you, you have to twist Gordon's arm, Gordon Edwards' arm to talk about safeguards. He, he'll, just, he'll just slough off safeguards and say, they, well, that's just, you know, that doesn't work. That's, that's people checking on other people. And of course, human nature is is to agree with that and say, "Yeah, people checking on other people that doesn't work." You know, they, we have laws against uh, doing drugs and laws against drinking in public, and, and I sure know how to get around that one. You know, so um, but now you put now if that's a, if that if you transfer that to the idea of of nuclear technology, and all of a sudden it's scary because now it's not just any bomb, but it's a bomb that I can blow up a, a whole city with, and and people like Gordon Edwards nurture this this inherent feeling that people have. And I think, I think it is inherent. So when, when people like you and I walk into a room, um, you are already, already behind the eight ball, even if, even if it's a room purportedly of, of, uh, supposedly of, of neutral people. You've, yeah, you've got to yeah. move them off that square of sort of inherent negativity. I feel that all the time. I did a, um, a, uh, basically a town hall with uh, my local MP, um, who's a great guy, Arif Rani. Um, he has nothing nuclear. Like there's a lot of Ontario electoral districts that have a lot of nuclear going on. And those politicians are aware of it and are champions for the sector. But, um, you know, Arif has, we're, you know, Parkdale High Park. Um, this is a NDP green kind of bastion swings NDP and, and liberal. Um, you know, both of those two parties are not super friendly with nuclear. So he's taken a risk. Um, Basically, because he's been convinced partially by listening, you know, his constituents uh, and himself listening to decouple every once in a while um, to to really champion nuclear. So anyway, he had he had me to a, a town hall and he was like, do you want to have a debate? And I was like, not really. I mean, I'm not afraid of a debate, but I just think it's going to not be a quality conversation. And he's like, well, how about I play devil's advocate and I'll just ask you all the questions. And, it, you know, it was a bit of an exhausting night. I'd, I'd worked a shift that day and, and came to it. And, you know, it's just like. There's so there's such a positive story to be told here, and we've completely lost um, lost the narrative if we're just responding. Like, yes, you know, clearly we have to address this concern of I don't know. There should be a, an acronym for it, but like you know, waste weapons and accidents or something. The WWA. 
of nuclear. <laughs> um, but like, there's a really positive story to be told here um, in terms Waste of Waste weapons and you know, whoops, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got a got a better way with an acronyms than I do. Maybe that's the IAEA in you or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's a positive story to be told here, right? And we've mentioned it. You know, I mean, phasing out coal in Ontario, the uh, medical isotopes, um, you know, the just trans, like the actual just transition for fossil fuel workers. Um, you know, the the ways in which nuclear just uh, uplifts human potential. Like this is the thing I keep coming back to with people is, you know, yes, you know, is a is banging up, you know, foreign made. Well, wind, uh, sorry, wind panels, solar panels on on frames. Is that a risky construction project? No, it's easy. These these are on budget, on time, sort of um, uh, bits of bits of infrastructure. But what's the value proposition, right? And and so nuclear requires just this extraordinary amount of human potential. Um, but in in requiring it, it buoys up you know the people involved. You know who, who get higher higher educations, higher standards of skills if they're skilled tradespeople. Um, you know, incredible project management skills and, you know, nuclear can flounder um, when those ingredients aren't there. But, you know, that's that's part anyway of this sort of more positive story that I think we don't get a chance to express enough because we're just constantly on the defensive. And I think those times are changing uh, because of, you know, novel communicators um, like, you know, this kind of global nuclear advocacy community, uh, but also just, you know, the winds are are blowing in our favor. And that's all, you know, why I'm saying like, it's almost irrelevant to talk about the anti-nuclear mindset because it's, I mean, it's, unfortunately, it's very gray haired. Like it's, it's, uh, <laughs> there's some, there's some saying that's a bit harsh, but it's like, you know, for an idea to die, sometimes the people that hold it have to kind of go along with it. Um, but again, I, w- still, I wish uh, I had more gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Looking at you, I'm, I'm really not sure what your age is. You seem kind of timeless. Maybe I'm it's that hormesis tell. effect. I'm an okay. Anyway, that again, a bit bit of a long diatribe for me. But you know, I was struck by your yin yang language, and you know, within the yin yang, there's a little dot of white in the black, and a little dot of black in the white. Um, so let's let's go back to proliferation and, and talk about you know some of the the challenges and um, not necessarily, I guess, kind of the exceptions to the rule in terms of um, states that have um, you know broken the NPT, the Non Proliferation Treaty. Um, how do, how how did that happen? And was that sort of a breakdown? Uh, like, what would you give credit to four countries doing that? What were the costs that they had to pay? Just give me a sense of that. How, how do we keep people in line in terms of being this kind of global policeman on on? Yeah, so so ultimately the, the IAEA we're we're just the ones who verify. We don't we, we don't enforce, and so we 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 go and we inspect and we have like an objective assessment of what what the countries are doing. We draw a conclusion and we pass that to. The, the board of directors for the IAEA, and ultimately, if it becomes, if it's actually a case of a country is proliferating, it becomes a Security Council issue. So it's just elevated to, to that level, and then where it goes from there, it's it's out of our hands. Um, and um, there's very different, various different different examples. Um, it, you look at your North Korea, which, which is a case where it was detected that they were were um, doing things they shouldn't with their nuclear technology. How and, was it detected? And, and what, what nuclear technology did they have? What was their route to getting weapons? Yeah, so, so they had reactors and they were misusing the reactors and they were basically trying to, to do irradiations, do, you know, put targets into the reactors. Um, using these the are research targets. reactors, power reactors? Power, power reactors, were... yeah. And it went back and forth and eventually they just, you know, the thing about the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, is, you, is there is a, a clause to get out of it. You have to give advance right. notice, and then you can just withdraw from it, as, as any treaty would, would have sort of thing. You wouldn't sign it otherwise. 
Um, and so they, they did that. They just said, you know what, we're, we're out. And they've been out ever since. Um, but they were detected first before yes, they did that. Yeah, Is that correct? Yeah. And do you, do you know the particular story there or how it was detected? Or Well, I, I, no, I can't get into the details of, of, of that. Okay. But it was basically through, through the measures applied by the, by the, by the IAA. And, Sampling and, of dust from a professor's desk, perhaps? And and also Maybe you've already the, revealed too much, Jeremy. <laughs> at the same time, you have you. We aren't the only people that are keeping eyes on certain countries. So they, at the same time, you have right. the intelligence community is, is knows a lot about what's going on, and there's a there's a general convergence of knowledge of what's going on in a country, and and diplomatic pressure is applied, um, um, to the point where where the we 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 thought we were were fixing the issue and and by 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 like they were they were making we're mitigating and and we were changing their technology even um and then they transgressed again and and that's when they just basically pulled the plug and 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 left this left the system and now and ever since then they've just been sort of running with a nuclear weapons program and and so the IEA has nothing to do with what happened since then everything since then is the rest of the world keeping eyes on it and and it's 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 not to do with the with the IA except that the IA is ready to go back in at any point if 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 they invite us back in they get to come back the in, in, into the into the fold um, then you have countries um, like so the the big one was was Iraq in the early nineties where we were doing safeguards uh, um, much more simply prior to that where where basically the country t- tells us what they're what they're doing where the reactors are and, and anything else involving nuclear technology and we go in and inspect and, and verify yes what you have declared is correct um, and what was missing from that and and it always included the idea that we should be making sure that nothing undeclared is going on elsewhere in the country we just didn't do as much about it back then um, because of various reasons including not having the resources to do it well, to have more resources, you need to have the, the will of of the, of the people who are funding you, which is which is are the member states of the IAEA, and that happened in the early '90s when when it was detected that there was uh, uh, misuse of the technology going on in in um, in Iraq, and 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 Saddam Hussein was developing weapons of of mass destruction, and so um, there was a realization that he was doing this in 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 facilities that were right next door to the ones that were being inspected, but we had no, the IAEA had no legal right to go to those neighboring facilities. And so there was an immediate recognition by, by the world that we needed to fix this, that, that we, we had the, we had the legal, the, the statute of the IAEA allows us to go in with a view to looking at these, the state as a whole, but the measures, the tools that we had were very limited and pretty much focused on, on the declared facilities. So we needed to be able to, to go anywhere in, in in the state. First of all, anywhere on a site, anywhere on a nuclear site, let alone never mind the country, but also to go anywhere in in the country. To, so to have strengthening of safeguards, and that's what happened as a result of the the Iraq transgressions in in the early nineties, um, and and then and then much of the Iraq's situation was <laughs> ended up being dealt with through military means, and so that wasn't anything to do with the IAEA, but. Um, uh, and, and the WMD wasn't wasn't there. Yeah, eventually. I mean, the second time when when they were when the country was basically annihilated, and it was it came out that no, no, they had sort of gotten rid of the WMD uh, at the first time round, and then it, the, the the political motivations took over afterwards. Um, and so that's all history. And then you have um, Iran, which is which uh, what what had had ideas about 
developing nuclear weapons and kind of went down that path. Um, and, and again, detected by, by, the, by the system. And um, then you had, on top of the NPT, you, you had the, the uh, Iran nuclear treaty that was, was uh, negotiated by the, the, the P5 plus other countries. Um, and the IEA was then used as the verifier of that treaty. But that's different from, from the NPT. So we have always been implementing the NPT verification activities in Iran. And on, and on top of that, there's much more restrictive uh, activities under under the JCPOA, which is the which is their particular uh, 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 treaty. Um, Trump scrapped that. Has Biden brought it that's back? That's the one you know, that, that the U.S. walked away from, and so that's the one that's in trouble because because the 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 leader of the free world walked away from it, which basically um, it, it, it's not good for global treaties when the USA does that. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm drawing I'm drawing some you know very strong comparisons between the countries we're talking about, and maybe Libya was in there as well for a while. But all of these countries are basically under threat by the U.S. for of re- regime change. Is that not a startling? I mean, and you, yeah, yeah, the U.S. is the leader of the free world and sort of the global superpower. And I'm not going to ask you, you know, you probably have some limitations on what you can say, but I mean. Maybe so. Maybe I'll just do the editorial here. But I mean that that's that's kind of extraordinary. And again, I'm not sure the exact timing of North Korea getting the bomb, but I think it may have been after Saddam was overthrown or dragged out of his his bunker. Um, you know, all bearded and looking absolutely miserable. I think it was before Gaddafi was you know stabbed to death and thrown into an irrigation uh, canal. Not not to make any comment on you know the quality of of human being of these individuals, but. Um, you know, Iran similarly under under threat from the U.S. in some pretty uh, pretty major ways. I, like when I think about a new non proliferation treaty, <laughs> I think it might like in terms of the, the the motivation for states to get weapons. And I think this comes back to that point of you know, there's no stuffing the nuclear genie back in the bottle when it comes to um, this fantasy that that will lead to the elimination of weapons. What drives weapons proliferation are these geopolitical tensions, um, because. From what I understand, it's really, really expensive to develop, to, to get the expertise and to maintain the credible threat of deployment, whether that's your, what is it, your nuclear triad of Air Force, uh, you know, ground missile weapons and submarines. To be a cred- you know, credible user of those weapons, it's, it's an absolutely enormous uh, economic undertaking with, with big um, uh, potential headaches and maybe we'll get to india in a second and you know because i think it was interesting they were kind of starved of nuclear fuel because they don't have their own uranium and some of their beloved pressurized heavy water reactors are actually offline for extended periods of time because of uh the npt uh treaty uh but but maybe i'm jumping ahead too far if there's anything else you wanted to say about the the iran iraq north korea thing one thing i'm I'm particularly curious about as you said because this has been a sort of pro-nuclear narrative of mine is that you know um power reactors don't like all you know don't necessarily or actually pretty rarely lead to the production of nuclear weapons but you're saying in north korea they did have power reactors um were these large reactors or just kind of cover power reactors to to develop the weapons or what what was going on there well they had power reactors that were more easily misused for for making weapons make weapons they were supplying electricity to pyongyang or something yeah they're like dual use Use system. Okay. So, so one of the outcomes what, what, of, what, for the ner- nerds out there were they like RBMK style reactors yeah, yeah, or what? Yeah. They were Chernobyl style. RBMKs. They were like okay. graphite reactors, and so, um, so, so one of the the outcomes of the initial in, interaction of of the world was, uh, in particular the U.S. was to replace those reactors with light water reactors, 
um, which can still make plutonium, but just the extraction of plutonium from those reactors is, is not as easy as, as from a reactor like they, like they had. And so that was the, the, the first thing that was going on. And then that all sort of fell by the wayside um, when, when they continued to, to show that they, they, they had aspirations to, to have a weapon. So, yes, any, it's just a fact of nuclear fission, that when you split uranium in, in half, you, you release neutrons, those neutrons, you want a lot of them to go and split other uranium neutrons, but, and, but ura- when uranium gets, sorry, uranium atoms, but when you get hit by a neutron you, you, and your uranium, you might split in half or you might just become one neutron heavier. And there's a certain chance that you will do that and, and, and not split. And when you become one neutron heavier... Um, you, you then go through a series of decays and you end up as plutonium. And the plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years, so that's where it stops for, for all intents and purposes. So in any reactor, you get a buildup. You get uranium atoms fissioning and you get a buildup of, of plutonium. And so this happens in candy reactors, light water reactors, RBMK reactors, and in military production reactors. Um, but then what happens also is that... Uh, so the plutonium that you create is very pure at that point. It's plutonium-239. It's a certain kind of plutonium, the kind that is useful in, in weapons. Uh, but the fuel hasn't gone anywhere, and it's still in the reactor, and it's still exposed to more to these neutrons. And so now the plutonium is absorbing neutrons and becoming one neutron heavier, or two neutrons heavier, or three neutrons heavier. And those heavier types of plutonium are not good for weapons. And so that's why you have reactor-grade plutonium, which is plutonium that's been in fuel, that's been in the reactor for a year or more, and you have weapons-grade plutonium, which has been quickly removed from the reactor before these heavier forms of plutonium build in. And that's the main difference in operation of a, of a military reactor versus a power reactor. And the, and the RBMK styles allow you to get that, you know, to cook the plutonium to the, yeah, just the 230. It was developed more as a dual use. Yeah. Um, so just, just briefly, without getting too nerdy here, but we do have a lot of nerds in the audience. Um, so why is the isotopic purity of the plutonium important? What happens with that plutonium 240, 241, 242? I heard about a fizzle. It can do a fizzle. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, the, the main thing is that they, they, they emit neutrons. They, they themselves emit neutrons, those higher forms of plutonium. And so when you have a weapon, what, what makes a weapon versus just a bunch of heat or, you know, is that uh, when you have a bomb, what makes a bomb is, is that you have a lot of energy released in a very short amount of time. So it's it's that window of, of of the energy release. So for a nuclear weapon, you want your if it's let's say two two half pieces of of uranium to to evoke the the simplest type of nuclear weapon coming together. Um, you want you, you, you figure out what the critical mass of uranium is. You get that amount. You split it in half, or maybe you don't you don't have it together to begin with because that would be dangerous. But you get two half half amounts of that. And then you bring it together really quickly, as, as quickly as you can. So they do this by basically fi- keeping one stationary and firing another one in a gun barrel at the other one. And that's the fastest that we can move a, a, a chunk of material. Um, that's that's the Hirosh- con- Hiroshima design, right? Yes, that's the, the Hiroshima. The, highly yeah. enriched uranium. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's the, that's the, the, uh, the Hiroshima. So it's like the gun barrel design. Not as popular today because we mostly use the implosion design, which was the Nagasaki design. But basically, in the simple design, you bring in these two halves together. When they're coming together, even though they're traveling at uh, projectile speeds, it seems fast to us, but for, for at subatomic levels, that's really slow because these things travel at, at, fraction, at high fractions of the speed of light. And so as the pieces are coming together, if there's any radiation coming from those two pieces, which there would be from uranium, it's going to be going across and, and being absorbed in the other piece of uranium. So if it's gamma rays, 
alpha particles, um, you know, they, they are not going to initiate fission. But if, you're, if it's neutrons that are being transferred back and forth, as you're coming towards the other piece, you're going to have fission starting to build up. And now you know, you know what you want to have is the two pieces come together with no fission. Then you inject your starting, your starting neutron, and then the, the, the chain reaction happens, and you have a very fast chain reaction in a short amount of time, and then the whole thing blows itself apart, and, it's, and it ends, and the chain reaction ends. You, you don't want the chain reaction to start uh, long before the pieces come together. So for uranium, this is not an issue because there's not enough neutrons flying around from the uranium itself. Um, by the way, that's one way to... <laughs> one, if you talk about uh, neutralizing nuclear weapons, one way to do that is to bathe it in neutrons because you're basically, it is, you're basically like pre, pre-detonating it before the thing gets to... So it's like the, the flak gun of nuclear weapons <laughs> is, is a bunch of neutrons. Wow. Um, so then if it's, it's all game theory. If you're a nuclear weapons designer in the modern day, there are ways to, to design a nuclear weapon that's more... Uh, more uh, resistant to to this, and so they and, and and on and on it goes. But back to this. Um, sure, but there, there actually is a mechanism to sort of shoot a neutron ray gun at at bomb. Like, how, how would that happen? When would you? Is it a a superhero that goes around with a little <laughs> neutron? With the gun neutron and, beam coming out. Yeah. yeah. So there there are ways to have neutron sources, strong neutron sources that you can have near. You can fire up in the air, and and uh, um, from the air. Yeah, I mean, you you, you can wow. even have yourself, and uh, you can even have a a, a, a counter nuclear weapon, if you will, that, that emits more neutrons than anything else, and 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 bathes the other weapon in neutrons. And so, wow. um, modern weapons are able to resist this. Is that the neutron bomb? Is that the neutron? A, bomb? a type of neutron bomb, yes, yes, where you, where you maximize wow. the, the the neutrons being emitted. Yeah, yeah. So um, for, for uranium, it's not an issue, uh, and, and that's why when they as soon as they discovered fission in uranium, they knew right away they could make a weapon. And nothing that happened after that, and this is during World War II, nothing that happened after that, after that in the Manhattan Project told them that anything would, would prevent this from happening. So they were so sure of it, they never had to test it at all. The, the, wow. first, the first nuclear weapon that, that, they, that they used was the one dropped on Hiroshima. They, they just knew it would but, work. But Trinity, they did Trinity test first, right? Trinity was a plutonium weapon. And so for that oh, one, they, okay. now we get to the plutonium story. So okay, what, got you. So in those early days, when they, were, they discovered fission of uranium, they didn't know anything about plutonium at that time, they discovered that, fission, that uranium fissions, and they discovered that one of these things that, that builds up is, is plutonium. And so they started looking into plutonium more and its properties, and, oh, look, it fissions as well. Isn't this great? You've got, you can take a rock that, you can, that generates energy, and while it's generating energy... Uh, whether it's a bomb or, or, or in a reactor, it's also generating more fuel. And that in itself is a unique thing about, about nuclear. So, but in the context of... a breeder of, reactor, right? Yeah, well, that's, that maximizes that aspect to make more fuel. But in the context of World War II, they were just saying, oh, look at this other um, fissile material that it creates, which is good because we don't have a lot of uranium that, that, that we can use, which is enriched because they had to enrich the uranium in the part which is less than 1%, the uranium-235. And they're like, rapidly trying to, which is like the, the, the largest industry on the planet at the time to try and do it, the largest factory, and they're trying to do that um, before the war ends. But they said, oh, this is great. Somebody's handed us this other material that, that is created. And look, we can create it. If we can just get this reactor to work, uh, a large enough reactor to work, we're going to make plutonium um, with the uranium that we have, and you can and extract the plutonium, and it, uh, and I'll make a nuclear weapon out of that. Um, but then they they discovered that it 
the, the fuel, the, the, the plutonium they extract from the fuel has these heavier forms of plutonium, and enough of them are emitting neutrons. Um, even if you have relatively pure plutonium, you're going to have a few of these, enough of these heavier ones that this is going to be an issue. And, and so this gets to this fizzle you were talking about, where the two pieces, let's say they're coming together in that, in that gun barrel, they would be talking to each other, and the fission reaction would start. So you'd get a large increase of energy. You'd have a large... Um, uh, it, it would even be an explosion. It wouldn't be a militarily useful city flattening type of explosion, but you would have a large, and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm supporting any of this actually, which is part of the problem of this, of this topic, by the way, that you very quickly, people start thinking that you're, <laughs> you're supporting nuclear weapons. Um, but you can have a fizzle bomb. It, it is a bomb and it would explode. You could have a truck bomb with this kind of plutonium and it would be much larger than the terrorist diesel diesel fuel fertilizer bombs that we have and you can bring down buildings with it and Gordon Edwards will talk about that he he this is when he says that any kind of plutonium can be used in a weapon that's what he's that's what he means he doesn't mean wrong. that yeah. that any military would use this but somebody could get a hold of it and have a have a, a pretty good bump and and so there's a whole story there about why you probably wouldn't do that it's far more complex so how, than just but, uh, getting a bunch so of how, diesel and fertilizer yeah so we've talked about nation states that have escaped the NPT and have, have made weapons. And we have, I think, a decent understanding of how they did that, dual-use reactors, et cetera, and just saying, screw off NPT, go away IEA, we're doing this. Big diplomatic price. And I think we'll get into that when talking about India in a moment. Um, but the other threat that Edwards brings up here, and again, there's a lot of stuff that's theoretically possible, but highly improbable. Um, how do terrorists get plutonium? How do they get it? Um, like what, what would be some, and again, I know you probably need to be quite theoretical in this answer. <laughs> I'm not trying to give anyone ideas, but like is what Gordon Edwards is evoking is that they would extract it from nuclear waste. Um, what's I imagine like stockpiles of plutonium are pretty carefully. Um, it's, it's extremely difficult to extract plutonium. Yes. Yeah. So, so the most capable countries on the planet have a hard time extracting plutonium from, from spent fuel. So almost nobody does it. Um, there's an advantage to doing it if you don't have uranium, if you don't have large amounts of uranium as Canada does. And so there, you, you might want to uh, recycle your, your fuel and extract. And, and the, simply looking at it, you would say, well, why not? Because, of course, we should recycle it. What, why would you take this resource? Well, the reason and, that... And that's what MOX, that's what MOX fuel is, right? Like when, when France gives, yes, uh, at the Hague is reprocessing, fuel, yes. they're taking... Like mostly plutonium out, I guess a bit of U two thirty five that's left, and mixing that into okay. You're basically getting rid of the of the fission products, the garbage, the, the the half pieces of uranium which are useless to you. Not only useless, they're a detriment. They're they're absorbing neutrons. And that that's not easy. That's a. I mean, the Hague is like an absolutely massive facility, right? Um, and and just I'm thinking about the mechanics of handling, you know, nuclear waste. Unsh- I mean, unshielded again. You're you're getting acute radiations and dying in like five, six seconds of being, you know, meter away. Um, I mean, what does that look like? Hot cells, um, yep, yep. It's chemical ro- baths? It's robotic machinery and, and remotely controlled machinery and, and thick shielding and meter thick glass and all of that stuff that you see in The Simpsons, except for the part where he's, you know, taking the, <laughs> taking the green goo and putting it in his back pocket. That doesn't happen. But everything else, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the control of it is, uh, is there for health and safety reasons and, and also security reasons. Um, and it's very difficult. And so um, from, from, a, from a simple 
point of view, we should be doing this with all of our reactors, extracting this, this uh, useful material. But, um, but the fact is, most countries don't. And the, the reason they don't is because they don't have to, because uranium is, is literally dirt cheap today. And uh, if, if it wasn't, as it, as it wasn't in the old days when nuclear started, and the people developing the technology said, oh my God, we, um, if things take off the way our... Na- if, we, if we extrapolate, <laughs> we're going to need to... Um, you know, some MOX fuel. We're going to need to extract the plutonium and mix it with the uranium and, and put that in the reactors. We'll, we need to take this thing called thorium, which is even more abundant than uranium on the, in the Earth's crust. And if you expose thorium to neutrons, it turns into uranium. So that's something else that, that was discovered. And, um, and we can do that as well. So there, um, the origins of the, of the Canadian nuclear program, actually, we're, we're heavily looking, uh, you know, built around the thorium um, fuel cycle before we realize we have the mother load of, of uranium in, in the earth. And so um, it's just natural that when you do discover you have this, this other, that there is a lot of uranium, um, then the, the, the uh, incentive to invest the, the billions needed to, to develop this, these other fuel cycles kind of, kind of peters away and to the point where it's been at the R&D level in, in, in national labs ever since – now making a comeback with, with SMRs at, at a much smaller scale. So you're seeing all these ideas that, that were popular in the 50s and 60s um, come, come back now, often because it's people who are working on it back then are retired <laughs> and, my, and have so, time on their hands. Yeah, my, my cynical read of it coming back, and let's be clear, these are not reactors that are getting built, they're, they're blueprints, um, is that this is part of a public relations battle around nuclear waste being this intolerable thing. So we're going to win a public relations uh, affair and attract some venture capital by solving the nuclear waste problem and and you know doing a bunch of reprocessing. It's not an economic imperative. Again, as you mentioned, uranium is dirt cheap. Um, like it's cool. It's a really great science experiment and it will have relevance in our nuclear powered future, no doubt. Um, you know, as uranium ores deplete and, you know, at some point, if we build enough nuclear reactors, we are going to start really working our way through um, the easily exploitable uh, yeah, uranium yeah. reserves. Um, so, I, I, you know, I fully support developing the technology, but I just I do find like that, you know, there's really not an economic case for it. Anyway, maybe that's beyond your, your purview. But well, I think I, I'm in favor of it because I'm not only a nuclear nerd, but I, I, I know that we have, you know, that, let's say 200 years of uranium left at the at the economic um, level that we have. For, for extracting it now. Um, and the, the caveat there is as, things, as, as it runs out, of course you find more uranium because then you're, you're, you're driving the, the searching for it. Um, for example, we, when we found the mother load of uranium under Saskatchewan, we stopped looking at that point. But there's probably more elsewhere uh, in that area. And it's just that it's very expensive to, to go down into... Prospect <laughs> for it, yeah. We're going to do, do an episode on that soon, but I was, I was talking yeah. to... Uh, the CEO of Standard Uranium, which is a prospecting firm up there. And yeah, it's tricky. You know, yes, it, it gives off uh, radiation, but, you know, they're, they're, anyway, we'll, we'll get into that with him because I'm not So I, I'm in favor of all those technologies. And here at the IAEA, I'm heavily involved in wor- working up what the safeguards of those technologies might be. And so that's really, really interesting work. But, but I realize that um, we, we do have to expand the use of nuclear power on this planet. It's not going to be with, with these technologies. We should, should absolutely be working on the, on, on the hairy edge of the technologies that are available to us. And, and, so, and so more power to you. And, and if you can build some prototypes, even better. But we haven't exhausted the, the traditional style yet. or Not traditional style, but the advanced version of the traditional style. Um, and, and, so, and so those reactors, I think, 
can we should be building more uh, can do like enhanced can do reactors, advanced can do reactors in Canada. Um, and advanced version of light water reactors. And we, as just well to remind people, we have, we have one through the vendor design <laughs> review, the enhanced can do six. So those are not fantasy objects. They, they do exist. Uh, we're running out of time, Jeremy. I mean, we're going to have to have you back to dive deeper. But um, And I know it's not the IEA's purview to um, make up the consequences for when a country you know abandons the NPT. But you know, in my discussion with and research before interviewing, uh, you know, this grandfather of of not only nuclear energy but also nuclear weapons in India, Dr. Anil Kokarar, um, you know, India did run into some some issues as a result of uh, exiting the NPT. Can you? I'm not. You know, can you tell me a little bit about? I know it's not the enforcement of the IEA, but what what are the consequences? You know, we've talked about how hard it would be for terrorists to you know to do this, but what are the consequences that countries face for withdrawing from the NPT and maybe use India as a specific example? Yeah, so India, I mean, you can use it as an analogy for, as a proxy for withdrawing from the NPT, but the truth is they couldn't sign the NPT in the first place. And so that's because, it, because they, um, the, the NPT doesn't have a space for them. If, if you sign the NPT, you're either a country, you're either one of the five allowed nuclear weapon states or, or you're not. Um, and you. if you're not, it means you don't have nuclear. There's no there's no square for people that have nuclear weapons but aren't those the, the P5 states. So India um, it has not signed the NPT simply because it, it's not. There's no they can't. They'd have to give up their nuclear weapons, and they don't want to do that. And why do they have nuclear weapons? Well, the same reason that the U.S. has nuclear weapons because they have an enemy or a perceived enemy. In their case, a real enemy that also has nuclear weapons, and and they want it. For and the interestingly, same that was not Pakistan because Pakistan came after. That was China. That's what that's what I find fascinating. And obviously, there's been border conflicts between uh, China and India. And you know, my friend Mark Nelson was joking about you know this is what a border conflict looks like between two nuclear powers. And basically, it was stick fighting. You know, I think there was someone who maybe got killed or injured, but you know. <laughs> That, that is an interesting aspect of it. But yeah. um, anyway, yeah, I mean, then there was a yeah. domino effect because Pakistan got, got the bomb as well. And right, you know, when exactly. does the domino stop? It's, it's a geopolitical question, I guess. But, and so, so like, what were one the consequences? It doesn't, doesn't have yeah. to support that, but you recognize that they, they, ha- they made this, this decision for the same reason that other countries that have weapons made, made, made the same decision. So, um, but, but they had received nuclear assistance from, from Canada and the U.S. in the form of a research reactor. And then, and then we were in the, in the process of building a couple of power reactors in, in India. And it was under this agreement, pre-safeguards, pre-IA safeguards. So that we, we, were, we had a, form of, a rudimentary form of safeguards, but it wasn't what you see even in, in the mid-'70s, let alone what we have today. Um, and, and let's just say what it was. It was more of a gentleman's agreement. You, you won't use this for evil, right? Yes, I won't. Okay. And, um, and so then, but they, but they did. And um, as soon as they did, then they, all nuclear all cooperation uh, from the world was, was uh, dropped. And then they were basically uh, isolated. And they, um, t- to their credit, continued to, to develop a nuclear, their, their nuclear program, not, not just uh, sort of reverse engineering the reactors that were partially uh, finished in their, in their country and building them a lot more like that, but, but saying, well, look, we, we, we don't have uranium and we're not going to be able to buy uranium from the world, so how else can we make uranium? Um, well, we can do this thing where you, make the, you, you, you breed plutonium into the fuel and we can also do this thing where you put thorium in. We have a lot of thorium, and we can make uranium with that. So they had this, this uh, multi-prong approach to, to their nuclear program. Uh, and they proceeded to do that for the next few, de- few decades. And so more power to them, uh, literally more power to them for, for doing that. 
and, and uh, expanding their, their nuclear program. But all of that was without the cooperation of, of the globe. And not, not every country has the ability to, to do that. So w- when you cross the line, you, you are cut off. And, and you, you become then the focus of um, the other parts of the, of the world's security infrastructure for, you know, for making sure that, 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 that you don't cross the line e- even further. So um, the, the, the military gets involved if, if that's what the Security Council wants to do sort of thing. And so all of this comes down on you when, when, you, when you decide to, to uh, uh, use nuclear technology for, for non-peaceful purposes. Okay, Jeremy, um, fascinating. Um, we'll park it there because we do try and keep to an hour. Um, but I, I'm, I have no doubt we'll be talking in the very near future. If you'll be so gracious as to, uh, return to this, uh, humble podcast. Is this like Saturday night live? I get to say I'm a, a, a three-time host, maybe <laughs> Not yeah, a host, yeah. I guess. A three-time guest. <laughs> you got to earn it. You got to earn it, but I think you will soon. Um, Okay, well, I mean, I, I feel like that's an abrupt halt. If, I mean, if there's anything else you wanted to get off on the, on the non-proliferation side, I, I invite you to do it now. You don't have to forever hold your peace, but you don't have to <laughs> hold it till we next speak. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, well, there's so much more to say on proliferation that we can leave that for, for another episode. But I, I would like to say that one final note, one final observation on, on the great debate was I, I find it interesting that the, that the argument made was about SMRs, against SMRs, is that we can't develop them uh, fast enough to solve the climate crisis, and and to me this is a bit amusing because because um, I mean part of the reason we haven't expanded the nuclear uh, in, uh, in industry to date and and not had the climate crisis in the first place was because of people like that who 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 who, who opposed it. But it's interesting to me that that um, a person can be opportun- opportunistic enough to 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 not say their real reason, which is I don't like nuclear technology but but to move to um yeah but you just can't build it fast enough it's like okay so that's where we are now that we, <laughs> we can't build it but, because so, so we would love your cooperation that to, to help streamline and speed and if it you up want we can you know, build these things in three years right i mean they, they that's what aecl was talking about uh, at, at one point um right. technically you can build them in three years and then everything else added on is is the administrative stuff and the and the and the um reviews and, and all of that stuff, which, which is needed. But, but, I mean, the actual building of it, we could be building these things every three years if you could somehow prioritize the other aspects of it. So if that's what you want, if it's important we enough, can <laughs> we, we can do it. Are you saying it's important enough? And, of course, that's not what they're saying, yeah. but it's just, that's yeah. why I find it interesting that you lead off with uh, speed of construction. It was, it was interesting because I was heading into the lion's den. The event was organized by... Gordon Edwards, one of his chief kind of collaborators and partners in, I won't say crime, uh, in anti-nuclearism, Susan O'Donnell. Um, The other organizer, Ryan, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name. I mean, he's not an anti-nuclear activist, but certainly on the record. Cats. On the record all over Twitter um, with, you know, pretty pretty anti-nuclear sentiment. Um, So, you know, it was going into the lion's den. And I think it was interesting because I think they really thought they were going to, like, Edwards was going to deliver the knockout blow and, and, you know, preparing for it, it was, it was a bit nerve wracking because I'm not a proliferation expert. I'm not a weapons expert. Uh, but again, I wanted to thank you for helping me arrive, um, not just at that rhetorical understanding, but at that kind of deeper understanding of, of the anti-nuclear mindset and of the, the need to acknowledge what must be acknowledged. Um, but to have a critical reasoning based approach to, uh, to discussing this technology. So it's, it's Jeremy, really what again, it comes down to, yep. 
Yeah. Thank you for everything, for your, your mentorship and advice and for coming back on Decouple and let's make it a hat trick soon. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure talking to you soon. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.